the situation we face today is that nine out of 10 people worldwide breathe dirty air. I'm Jessica Jones Langley, and this is 15 Minute Cities. So for this episode, I really wanted to understand the state of cities today, looking specifically at the air that we breathe and how the goals of the 15-minute cities can really contribute to a cleaner, healthier, and ultimately happier environment for people to live in. To do this, I spoke with Sandra Cavalleri from the Climate and Clean Air Coalition to learn more about the air that we breathe today. Air pollution, what people might not realize is even when the air looks clear, there are still in many cases large number of, of air pollutants. Worldwide, nine out of 10 people are breathing dirty air. And these air pollutants can be as small as the size of a molecule. And we are, when we breathe, we're breathing in everything that is in the air is going into our body, into our lungs. It leaves, it penetrates through the lung walls and goes into our bloodstream. And it is the number one environmental risk to environmental threat to human health. So air pollution is hugely significant for human health. It's responsible for 25% of ischematic heart disease. 43% of COPD is attributable to air pollution. 24% of stroke and 29% of lung cancer. So these are huge numbers um, for non-communicable disease that is caused that are caused by air pollution. And so it it really like behooves all of us to think about the air quality in our in our city, the air quality in our in the rural area where we live, the air quality no matter where we are is important because it has huge impacts on our life from birth, you know, even from just pre-birth until until we die. So Sandra, how is the Climate and Clean Air Coalition addressing this problem? The Climate and Clean Air Coalition Secretariat was established in 2012 to advance mitigation of short-lived climate pollutants. And these are pollutants that live in the atmosphere for a short period of time. And so mitigation of these pollutants has a very direct and near-term impact on warming but also has very huge significant public health benefits and also benefits to agricultural crop production. And so right now we have a really a very big network of countries and organizations that have committed to taking action to reduce short-lived climate pollutants. So we're not a, um, there's no treaty involved. It's, it's really actually a coalition of the willing. And right now we have um, 77 countries and 78 intergovernmental and NGO organizations working together to reduce short-lived climate pollutants. So in this point of the conversation, I got really excited about the opportunity for change. As Sandra Cavalleri described to me, these pollutants that she's talking about, they don't hang around the air for so long. It's not like carbon dioxide, which can last for a really long time in the air. We're talking like 300 to 1,000 years. These short-lived climate pollutants like black carbon or methane, they live in the atmosphere for less than 20 years. So it's really possible to make an impact by driving down these pollutants and making sure that we don't contribute to more of them hanging around in our atmosphere. One way we do this is by encouraging a more sustainable way of transport, but I'll get into that soon. We also have um, a, a shared platform that we've worked on for many years with the World Health Organization, with, with UNEP and with the World Bank called Breathe Life. 
And this is a platform where we showcase city examples and cities that have signed up to take commitments to reduce air pollution. One of the reasons we set up Breathe Life was because we wanted to make the world aware of the World Health Organization's air quality guidelines and also the interim targets that governments can set themselves on a path to. So even if the actual standard looks almost unachievable, there is a way to make progress to the first interim target. And so we've, we've talked with a lot of cities, a lot of governments about what, is their, what are their priorities, what are they working on, where do they need technical assistance, how can we provide that support? And so I would say it's breathelife2030.org. And then also the Climate and Clean Air Coalition has a expert assistance request form where governments can um, request support. Now, this would be from developing countries could request support for technical assistance. But developed countries that are interested also can join the coalition and they can join our hubs, like join the waste hub, the heavy duty vehicles and engines hub. Those are the ones that are mostly city focused, I would say. And by joining, you're basically joining a community of practice, of experts, of countries, of cities, of people who are just like basically like you, the individuals that are trying to do more than their job description to implement these measures and um, to like, you know, basically learn from each other, provide peer to peer support. And all of that is so important. Thinking strategically together about how we can scale up renewable energy, which is the really the the main core of this um, of this effort, and um, and reduce emissions of pollutants. It's it's not about moving away from where you are to a cleaner to a cleaner place because air is we share one atmosphere, and um, it's really important that. It's not only your city, but it's also the whole place where you live. And and like transboundary air pollution is a huge deal. And thinking about how um, not only cities can connect, but then countries can connect at the regional level. And then we have this global uh, solution to our problem. But again, it all comes down to individuals in my mind and people willing to take risks to advance the solutions as much as they can from the position that they sit. People can only do so much. It really takes all of us collectively. And the only way I think to move people collectively is through government policy. And so I hope that there's enough private sector companies that are willing to push governments. I hope there's enough people that are um, like really active in their community to try to to um, like force this change and that we can actually make progress. And the local government really comes in and then in the places where the local government can't make make an impact because they don't have the mandate, then the local governments need to go together to the national government and say, look, you need to help us because if we have this policy change, we'll be able to have like cleaner streets, cleaner landfills, cleaner um, cl- you know, cleaner industry, all of these things can clean up. But it, it's it's very hard, I think, for a local government to tackle every problem by itself. And one government that is really working to address this is the United Kingdom. The UK produced a number of air quality plans from around 2017 uh, in relation to meeting EU targets to the reduction of nitrogen dioxide. The environmental law charity client Earth took the UK government to court a couple of times, arguing that the air plans were not sufficient to meet the targets. The court found that uh, the government needed to go back and 
look at the air quality plans again. And in doing so, the government issued ministerial directions to local authorities to come up with clean air plans to uh, stipulate how they would meet compliance with nitrogen dioxide limits in the shortest possible amount of time. So that's Hugh Russell. He works with local partnerships. So I'll get him to describe a little bit more about what local partnerships is and the type of work that he does. So local partnerships are a public sector delivery organisation. We're owned by the HM Treasury in the UK Central Government Organisation and the Local Government Association, which represents 350 or so local authorities or councils in England and Wales. And we're also owned by the Welsh Government. So we work for any public sector organisation throughout England and Wales, and sometimes in Scotland and Northern Ireland too. We aim to upskill the public sector. We aim to achieve value for money for our clients. We aim to help with the governance of contracts, helping the public sector be more commercial and to deliver projects effectively. Uh, We work in all sorts of different uh, spaces, but the environment and climate change response is a key area for us. This is done through scientific modeling, air quality modeling, transport modeling, and various solutions are proposed by the local authorities, including clean air zones, including traffic related measures, including junction changes, cycling and walking initiatives, that type of thing. But it, it's three to four years probably from you know starting a business case to actually getting a, a clean air zone running would be an average, I'd suggest. To understand more about what these processes look like on the ground, I spoke with Councillor Jane Byrne from Newcastle-upon-Tyne who is working to create opportunities for active, healthy travel throughout the city. So Jane, I've spoken with Hugh Russell, who works with local partnerships, and he gave some context to what the national government was working on and what they're trying to achieve through programs like the Clean Air Zones. With your experience as a councillor in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, can you give us some insights and background to what the government is trying to work on? Well, uh, the background to it is the government told us that we had to improve air quality in parts of the city, both in in Newcastle and in Gateshead, which is our neighbouring local authority on the other side of the river. And this is obviously in response to the direction the government has that it has to improve air quality for the sake of health. So we were given that direction that we then had to look at how we could make that work. And as you know, the, the options are to, you know, to create a clean air zone that you've got options in terms of what the layout of your clean air zone is and what you include in your clean air zone. And in Newcastle, what we when we did the modelling, we realised that we could meet the targets we need to meet by restricting buses, heavy goods vehicles, vans and taxis that didn't meet clean air standards. Can you talk to us about Newcastle? What does it look like? Well, Newcastle is a, a small city in the, the northeast of England. It uh, was kind of a, a big industrial city, so a lot of it was built in the 19th century. So we have quite narrow streets that obviously predate cars. Then we also had quite a lot of development in the 60s with the idea of having a streets in the sky where we were going to have motorways everywhere instead of canals, which was our version of Venice, which is a very interesting kind of modernistic approach but obviously very much prioritized cars so we've been left with a city that has a little bit of both I guess narrow streets from the uh, the oldest development and then some parts of a, a ring road and a motorway that was about the age of the car. 
And we're trying to negotiate a way around that. And where do you see Newcastle in the future? I would hope that we'll have far more people walking and cycling as a matter of course. And we're doing a lot of work with school streets. So we're hoping that, you know, young people will kind of grow up expecting to walk and cycle. But I want them to be doing that in a context where they feel safe doing it. It's enjoyable doing it. And they've also got access to, you know, to good forms of transport, good public transport. I would expect that cars will still be part of what we do, but maybe people will be using cars a lot less. And I guess that, you know, potentially maybe in generations to come, people will think in terms of car sharing rather than having to have a car. Now that you've implemented the clean air zone, how do you encourage more people to move more sustainably? How do you get them out of cars? We're not in charge of public transport in Newcastle, so it's not like the kind of schemes that you have in London, but we do have some influence over it. So it's about working with bus companies in terms of supporting bus routes and looking at um, where we can offer subsidised fares for like families and things like that. So it's trying to, to offer public transport that is reliable and affordable because we think that will help people be able to make the change. Maybe not for all of their journeys, but we're very much about people making fewer journeys by car. That's what we want to do, and that's why we're working on school streets as well. We know that walking and cycling is it's good for the planet, it's good for people, but you're only going to do it if you feel safe doing it and if it's pleasant to do it. And that's what everything, all of this is about. So I hope from this episode that you were able to understand a bit more about the problem of the air that we breathe in different cities. You may have actually come across this topic before or understood what the data was behind it. It's not a new topic. However, the solution really needs to be at the forefront of the conversation around this problem. So that's where 15 comes in. They work with cities to really encourage that behavioral change, that shift to sustainable transport. And they do that through supporting cities to offer bike sharing. Bike sharing is a fantastic way to get more people cycling that don't cycle yet. If you're interested in learning more about what bike sharing could look like in your city, feel free to reach out to us. There'll be a link in the description with how to contact us, but the team is more than happy to have a conversation and give you everything that you need to really encourage a modal shift towards sustainable transport. Many thanks to our speakers, Hugh Russell from Local Partnerships, Sandra Cavalieri from Climate and Clean Air Coalition, and Councillor Jane Byrne from Newcastle on Time, who took the time to speak with me to really understand the problem and also talk about the future and how we can get there.